Good afternoon. My name is Martha Gill. I'm with Friends of the Knox County Public Library. Our book today is entitled The System, The Glory and Scandal of Big-Time College Football. And our reviewer is Mike Strange. I believe that Knoxvillians have forgiven Mike Strange for having been born in Kentucky because he's been here since the early 80s. He does hold degrees from Georgetown College and the University of Kentucky, but again, uh, we are broad-minded people. He has worked at newspapers in Kentucky, but decided to come to Knoxville, and we are the beneficiaries of that decision in 1983. After one year of covering the Lady Vols beat, he has covered University of Tennessee football and men's basketball since 1984. Please welcome someone who knows a great deal about big-time athletics in Knoxville, Mike Strange. About once a year I speak to a civic club and I always start out with the uh, disclaimer that I'm not a public speaker, uh, I'm not a lecturer, and, and I'm probably not even a reviewer, so audience participation will, is the only way we'll all get through this and, and enjoy it, I think. So this book is so full of things we, we could spend you know several days, I guess, reviewing it and talking about it, so I, I'm not going to hit on every chapter, just kind of some themes and and some things I thought were particularly interesting. I've been covering college football for more than 30 years, and I have to say there wasn't a whole lot in here that uh, stunned me or anything, but but it's still interesting to see what goes on behind the scenes, and and there is quite a bit. And and there's several themes. One, of course, is money in in a lot of of ways. And there's also... uh, Throughout this book, several sexual themes, which if uh, you're, you're dealing about uh, college-age guys, I don't know, when I was in college, I didn't play college football, but uh, when I was in college, I remember most of the guys had sexual themes on their minds too, so I guess that's, that shouldn't come as any big shock either. The co-authors, uh, Armin Katayan is an uh, investigative reporter for a long time, primarily with uh, CBS, is CBS TV and and different avenues of CBS. He, he's done a lot of great investing work over the years. Jeff Benedict is a writer for Sports Illustrated, but he's also a, has a law degree and I believe is on the faculty at Southern Virginia University or Virginia Southern University, whichever it is. And he's been real active in the uh, kind of a theme, uh, an issue of violence against women on college campuses over the years. I'd actually run across him before years ago when I was doing writing something that uh, involves some sort of uh, violence against women in college athletics. So I picked out a few things to read, and, and I appreciate interruptions, questions, whatever, just let's make this work. I'm going to kind of start with the, uh, the money, just kind of give you an idea about some money ideas, of what, what's going on here if you don't already know. Probably you do or, or have a suspicion. Out of 120 universities playing Division I football, the so-called big-time football, 22 out of 120 made a profit in the year. I think this was 2010, 2011. And I believe the average debt of the ones that didn't make a profit was $11 million. So you got a lot of, a lot of money going on here. 
There's a chapter here with the uh, University of Michigan being one of the most richest. The University of Texas, far and away, makes more money than anybody else. But this is from the University of Michigan. Just to give you the scope of what we're talking about here, the projected athletic department revenue was estimated to be around $130 million for the fiscal year. $18 million of that goes to financial aid, $44 million in department salaries, $15 million in interest on debt and debt load associated with upgrades and renovations to football. Michigan's overall surplus for the year was estimated to be just $5.8 million. The athletic department needed rivers of cash to stay out of the red. More than 70% of that money, nearly $90 million of their revenue, flowed from a single source, football. And this is the uh, Michigan Athletic Director Dave Brandon quoting, Michigan athletics cannot be successful if football does not lead our success because the revenue it creates is what we live off. I think it was Mark Twain who said, if you put all your eggs in one basket, you better watch your basket. <laughs> well, that's our basket, football. It can't get sick. It can't falter. And, and I think, you know, living here in this community, we know what, what football means to, to the University of Tennessee and to this community in general in terms of money. One approach that the authors took to this book was uh, a guy named Mike Leach, a coach named Mike Leach. Are, are you all familiar? Does that name ring a bell with a lot of people? A lot of this book is focused on the year, the school year, I think, 2012-2013. So that would have been the 2012 football season. But they go back several years for perspective on different things. When we first meet Mike Leach, he is hired at Texas Tech. And he wins big and is a hero. But he, uh, he's also, there are allegations that he's uh, been abu abusive behavior towards his players. One player couldn't practice, and he... he banished him to a, an equipment shed in the dark for, for several hours, and one thing led to another, and there was foul language and insults and this, that, and the other, and a lawsuit. Anyway, he would not apologize for doing this, and Texas Tech fired him. So we're going to uh, pick up a little Tennessee connection here in the saga of Mike Leach. Let's go back to the 2008 season at Tennessee. It's, what, mid-November, Tennessee fires Phil or early November, I guess, Tennessee fires Philip Fulmer. So they're looking for a coach. Mike Leach is still at Texas Tech, still rolling big. Nothing bad's happened to him out there yet. So I'm going to read this just because of the Tennessee connection. Three years earlier, after Texas Tech had knocked off number one Texas, now this is referring to 2008, Tennessee officials repeatedly called O'Hagan, Gary O'Hagan, that that's the agent involved here for Mike Leach, in an attempt to lure Leach out of Lubbock. When O'Hagan declined to have Leach fly to Tennessee for a job interview during the regular season, Tennessee came up with a creative plan to ensure that no one would know the two sides were talking. The officials offered to fly to Texas in a private plane and rendezvous in the middle of nowhere with Leach. O'Hagan, the agent, said no way. A couple of weeks later, Tennessee hired Lane Kiffin. So, <laughs> uh, so we can all always be left to wonder what would have happened if Tennessee had hired Mike Leach instead of a Lane Kiffin if that meeting had taken place. So Mike Leach gets fired at Texas Tech. I don't want to dwell on him too much, but uh, just a little bit more. He uh, goes to Key West, Florida. He and his wife don't have a car to live on the beach in Key West for a couple of years. And before long... Washington State needs a coach. 
and they consider, well, here's, here's this Mike Leach down here. He was a big winner. He packed the stands. He, he made Texas Tech, took them from nothing to a big program. Yes, there was some baggage there. there were, he left under bad, bad terms. He was fired, hard to get along with. But, but Washington State needed a winner. They had no revenue coming in. So they went to Key West, met with Mike Leach. He strolls in for the interview in a hotel in his uh, surfer shirt, Hawaiian shirt and shorts, no shoes. And uh, basically, Washington State says, okay, we'll, we'll take a chance on him. The president's kind of against it. He's a little bit leery about this guy. But uh, they need revenue. They need a winner. So Washington State hired Mike Leach. And uh, as, as the book comes back to him later, he's at Washington State, and they're doing well, and they're packing the stands. They're raising money. But there's another allegation of player abuse. So it all came back to get them, came back to haunt them. But the point is that a winner, you've got to have a winner. It's, and I think that's interesting in looking at uh, right now what's going on at the University of Louisville. Bobby Petrino left there, gosh, I don't know how many years it's been now, four years ago, I guess, and uh, left in, under very bad terms. He wasn't fired. He left for another job, but he was extremely unpopular with the fans. They felt betrayed by him. He was always flirting with other jobs. And since he, he left there, he went to the Atlanta Falcons. He, that was a disaster. He quit the team in midseason to take a job at Arkansas. And at Arkansas, he was a winner at Arkansas, but got fired for having his young co-ed mistress on the payroll. And so it's just one scandal after another, one reason or another, not to like Bobby Petrino, but last week or a couple of weeks ago when Louisville's coach left, who did they hire? They went and hired Bobby Petrino because, because he's a winner. It just uh, kind of goes to show you how, you know, what an emphasis there is on winning, 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 bringing in the money. You've got to have the money. So... I uh, want to talk a little bit about Nick Saban. He's another coach that uh, appears different chapters through here. We all know who Nick Saban is. So a couple of these things aren't really controversial or anything like that. There's, there's no real scandal in here about Nick Saban, but, but just uh, he, he's so famous for being so businesslike and sticking to his routine and being compulsive about it. I just thought I'd read uh, his, his routine in the morning. His day begins in earnest, no later than 7.15, in a cavernous wood-paneled corner office decorated in warm earth tones. By the time he arrived, he would be well into his early morning routine, up at 6.15, watching the Weather Channel at 6.40, not 6.45, but 6.40. He would eat two Little Debbie cookies and three small bites each and drink his first two cups of coffee of the day. Between 12 and 1, almost every afternoon from the middle of February until the 1st of June, Saban would play an intense game of four-on-four basketball with selected members of his staff. The rules never changed. Three games to 11, baskets count one point, three-pointers, one-and-a-half points, and so-and-so. The opposing squad had come to be known around the football office as the Washington Generals, a nod to the longtime designated patsies for the Harlem Globetrotters. We didn't get too many calls, said Jeff Purington, the associate AD, who regularly drew the duty of guarding Saban. Afterward lunchtime, the same meal every day, iceberg lettuce salad topped with turkey and cherry tomatoes. The usual dressing light Dijon mustard on the side, which has been said by close observers to actually change from time to time. (laughs) So there's a little window into the... uh, 
uh, eyes of Nick Saban. And there was an interesting uh, some information about how he came to be at Alabama. During the 2006 season, Mike Shula was the coach there. They, they had been just going through kind of what Tennessee's going through now, you know, just a turnover in coaches. Nobody can get it together, a lot of turmoil. So they're looking for a coach. And the athletic director, Mal Moore, went to Steve Spurrier. Now, Steve Spurrier had just come back to South Carolina, and he'd been at South Carolina for two years. So Mal Moore said he first offered Spurrier the head job in December 2006 when they were both in New York City for a Hall of Fame dinner. It was intriguing. That's the word he used, intriguing, Moore recalled. But he said, Mal, I'm just too dug in at South Carolina. But Spurrier had another candidate in mind. He told me, you should go hard for Saban. So there's uh, Steve Spurrier. Uh, <laughs> Tennessee fans have a lot of reasons to, had no shortage of reasons to dislike Steve Spurrier. There's one more. He helped, <laughs> he helped get Nick Saban. A couple of themes I, I mentioned earlier I, about the, the money, the sexual things. I, I want to talk uh, about a couple of chapters I enjoyed in particular and one was The Closer. For people who read the book, do you remember The Closer, that chapter? Does anybody have any guess who The Closer, what that term might be? And the hostesses. Closing on recruiters, yeah. And, and this is Tennessee's chapter in the book. <laughs> Lacey Pearl Earps, a platinum blonde out of Nashville, joined the Orange Pride as a sophomore. The Orange Pride is the hostess group. She was a business major with unusual organizational skills, indefatigable worth ethic, and a goal of one day working in college athletics. Earps was more competitive than most of the athletes Tennessee pursued, never mind her fellow hostesses. This is a quote. I would keep talking to a guy to get him to come. If texting was all we had, we did it. That was my mindset. Let they think they have a chance with you once they get to school here. But in reality, they don't. She had no qualms about flirting. That was just part of the territory. We were a few years older than these players, Earp said. At that age, it's a pretty substantial difference. They're juniors and seniors in high school. We're juniors and seniors in college. The thought of having a relationship with an older woman is appealing, but it never happened. <laughs> but it almost did, almost did. Here, we're going to find out. So she was there when Philip Fulmer came in and... When Lane Kiffin was hired, he hit it, he hit it off with the uh, herbs. I mean, strictly in a hostess sort of way here. <laughs> it didn't take long for Earps to meet Kiffin. Given her personality and his enthusiasm to utilize the Orange Pride, they hit it off right away. This is her quote. Coach Kiffin was influential in the decision-making process for which woman is going to host a recruit. I got more official visits, and that was my ultimate goal. Then it gets interesting about Bryce Brown. Uh, most of you probably remember Bryce Brown. He was the, considered the number one prospect in the nation. He was a running back out of Kansas, had no connection whatsoever to Tennessee, but uh, Tennessee got involved recruiting. So here we go with Bryce Brown. Bryce Brown's official visit to Tennessee took place on Valentine's Day. Kiffin asked Lacey Earps to be the escort. I was flattered, she said. Official visits were the ultimate goal in Orange Pride, and Bryce was the number one recruit. Earps was 21, Brown was 17. They were virtually together the entire weekend. 
The moment Brown returned home to Wichita, he and Earp started communicating daily during the period leading up to the decision day in mid-March. We Skyped, we texted, we talked on the phone, we talked on Facebook, Earp said. One night she even stayed up till 4 a.m. Skyping with Brown. We didn't have a relationship, but we were getting close, she said. Actually, as I was recruiting him, maybe I did lead him on a little bit. Bryce wanted me to be single. So they come for a follow-up visit. I asked uh, Coach Kiffin talks to Earps. I asked Bryce what he wanted to do. He said, Coach, all I want to do is hang out with Lacey. <laughs> so Kiffin gave her some money. I went into his office, and he handed me $40. It was enough for the movies and ice cream, and it was also an NCAA violation. It wasn't the first time that members of the Orange Pride had been given money by members of Kiffin's staff. On more than one occasion, coaches gave hostesses money for recruiting parties. Earps was personally handed $100 on one occasion, $200 on another. Bryce returned to Knoxville for his follow-up visit. They go to Neyland Stadium, and then they go to the Marble Slab on Market Square for ice cream. It was another great weekend. <laughs> Two days after returning home, Brown held a press conference. He would attend Tennessee. I feel that's the school that's best going to prepare me to go to the next level, he said. And Earp says, I had a big role in recruiting Bryce Brown. I was an influential part of his decision. The press didn't pick up on Earp's role, but Kiffin's staff certainly did. After Bryce signed with Tennessee, Earp's got a new nickname, The Closer. It was intended as a compliment, and that's how Earp's took it. The nickname, the nickname stuck. From that day on, every coach and every member of the Orange Pride knew Earp says the closer. And we got some other comments from other recruiting hostesses here who talk about how they were, how flirting was very much a part of the process in recruiting. Probably everybody knows about the hostesses going over to South Carolina to the football game to hold up signs and impress the recruits and. That turned out to be a, a pretty big stink. And, and frankly, I was very surprised in the NCAA investigation that followed of all of the different things going on at UT that they basically got away with that. And I thought the hammer would come down on that. But it didn't. Uh, we've got a, a quote from another uh, a young lady who was a hostess here. Her name was Charlie. Charlie said she was never outright asked to sleep with the player either, but the expectation of sex to lure high school recruits was something she felt almost immediately after joining the Orange Pride. I'm a competitive person, she said. I did not want to be a mediocre recruiter, but she felt compromised. It was kind of like a catch-22. You wear high heels, your blazer, you look your best. I could always see myself as one of those beautiful women on the football field. But when you get into it, you learn the real reason you dress like that, the real reason your pants are tight. It's just warped. That was the reality for me. These are high school boys. They have one thing on their minds. So if you can show them that you're a UT football player, this is what you're going to get. From the athletics department, from the athletic department's perspective, it didn't matter how a recruit got there, whatever it took. A lot of people turned a blind eye. That was very unsettling to me. Again, that's her quotes. Henry decided she would not return to the Orange Pride after the season ended. So I'm, I'm going to go on with that sexual theme in another chapter at another school. This is at the University of Missouri, and here we're not talking about recruiting hostesses. We're talking about tutors, students that tutor the athletes and help them. And this was a story of a young lady who 
was a tutor that uh, ended up being sexually assaulted and charges filed and the, and the player ended up going to jail. Girls who got into tutoring for the wrong reasons played along, flirting and dressing provocatively for the tutoring sessions. The place had become a hotbed for hooking up. A former tutor at the University of Georgia described how football players would show up completely drained after workouts and practices. You would see these six foot five, 300 pound guys sprawled out on the couch because that's the only sleep they were going to get. Tutors had a hard time motivating their students. According to a tutor at the University of South Carolina, tutors would end up doing all the work for the athletes. She said, quote, some tutors would complete homework assignments for the football players. A former tutor at the University of Miami said that sex between football players and tutors was not uncommon. Things got so out of hand that Miami's tutoring coordinator told female tutors to minimize the amount of wake-up makeup they put on to stop wearing skirts and low-cut shirts to tutoring sessions. Quote, there were female tutors who would offer sexual favors to athletes in return for doing a paper. Miami was big for that. At Missouri, sex between athletes and tutors was common enough that the participants had a name for it, friends with benefits. Does that shock anybody, surprise anybody, or does that kind of had an idea that, uh, you know, that was, that was part of the scene? On Sunday, David Moon had an article in the paper about short-term decisions really having long-term consequences, one of which is all the um, television contracts really shortchanging stadium attendance and that stadium attendance is going down significantly because of the 20-plus games they're competing against on TV. And um, I also heard a story on Nick Saban um, on CBS Sunday, not uh, 60 Minutes, what. And the the president was saying what an incredibly good investment $5 million was in Nick Saban. It comes back millionfold. And yeah, it well, seems to me that they're in a bit of a catch-22. You've got to fill the stadiums, but you're selling the television rights. Trends are going down. You know, it's, it's a little scary for the future. Yeah, I think the, the TV money has gone up so much, it more than makes up for the fewer people in the stands. Where does that leave the future of of football at the collegiate level if the monies are going in the wrong direction? Yeah. I can tell you that because of the TV contracts, they're they're making more money than they've ever made before. I mean, the TV money is just fantastic. You mentioned Saban. Let me uh, quote one thing here uh, about Saban and and whether it's – okay, this is about Saban and the revenue he's brought into Alabama. And he's getting paid a little over, was a little over $5 million a year. Now it's bumped up to $7 million. Okay, since the 2007 season when he started, athletic department revenue has risen by more than a third from $90 million to $125 million in, in 2011-12. So that's $35 million right there. Football revenues jumped from $52 million to $82 million in the same period. Bryant-Denny Stadium underwent a $65 million expansion and beautification, increasing the capacity by nearly 10,000 seats. Sales of multimedia and merchandising rights have skyrocketed to around $18 million a year. So says Ben Sutton, the president of IMG College, that's a licensing agent division, whatever they've paid Nick has honestly been returned 20-fold. 
Yeah. I need a refresher here. Was it this past season where um, some of the players, I know it was Georgia Tech, um, they wore like a band that was like a show of solidarity. And it, it, right. it seemed to me maybe the early, early stages of these guys sort of, in effect, unionizing themselves. Um, yeah, th- that has been going on this year. Yeah. So who's leading that? Is there some – and I, I guess the gist of my question is, seem like the majority of these uh, players are African-American. And so I'm a little surprised. I've always been surprised that some leader of minority groups has not really taken that on as a cause, as it were, because you see all the money being made. And then just this past week, CNN did the report about the failing, you know, and how some of these guys are are at such a low uh, reading level. My thought, my sense, and I just want to get your thought on this, is that going to maybe be the next civil rights issue of the next five to ten years, potentially? That's a real good point. It might be. I couldn't tell you who's leading that, what the leadership is on that. I know a, a related issue, but separate, is a lawsuit filed by uh, a guy named Ed O'Bannon, who was a uh, basketball player at UCLA. He and a group have sued the NCAA and EA Sports that makes the games. You know, the games are just hugely popular. So... These companies and the NCAA, not not just the coaches. You, you know, one issue: the coaches getting paid five million, but you got all these other organizations making millions and millions of dollars off the athletes and their likeness. So that, that's going to be real interesting to see how that lawsuit turns out. Does the book address uh, how how the conferences rank in terms of money making? How's the SEC rank? I don't recall that it ranked them by conference. It may have. I've, I don't remember. Somebody can correct me if they read it, and it does. It's just obviously the SEC as a conference, I'm pretty sure that's safe to say, makes more because of their football stadiums, attendance, and also but mainly it's the TV contract. But Texas and Michigan rank one, too. I know that in terms of schools that making money. It seems like the NCAA doesn't have a lot of appetite to pay student-athletes. Do you know if there's any appetite to put a cap on coaches' salary? Because one thing I've always felt was like, well, at least the university's benefiting, even though these athletes may be taking advantage. The university and the other athletic programs are benefiting. But it just seems like right now we're in a, in a coach war. That every year yeah. teams are trying to grab other teams. The coaches are all mercenaries. Uh, you don't have you know, the Bobby Bounds that stay – yeah, let me uh, year in and year out. So why why didn't the NCA put not, a cap on coaches' salaries, and then coaches they would just coach because they like to coach football and I don't see how they could put a cap on it. This is from the uh, Elson Floyd, the president of Washington State University. This was in the Mike Leach thing where they hire Mike Leach and they're having to pay him more money than 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 they thought. Floyd was in a situation that many of his colleagues at other institutions had faced. We all think this is absolutely absurd, Floyd said. We sign the checks because we have no other alternative. There's not one university president who said, oh, yes, that's the right thing to do. So it's, you're right, it's a bidding war. But, I know, but Alabama has profited 20-fold, as it said, you know, on, on, on saving as a school, so... What do you think the future is as far as recruiting abiding rules for the University of Tennessee? Uh, recruiting by the rules? Like, do you think they're going to continue to abide, abide by them or break them or the rules will change? Well, my, my impression of, of Butch Jones is that he is pretty straight, straight arrow. Uh, 
you know, I, I, I don't cover recruiting, so I don't know all the ins and outs of it, the particulars, but, but my gut feeling, and from other people I've talked to that, that are around Butch and are, that do actually cover recruiting more than I do, is that he's pretty, he's pretty straight up. Probably since I've been here, the, the one year Lane Kiffin was the wildest year of recruiting and let's just say potential possible abuses taking place during his year. But, but I, I have no reason to believe that Butch isn't pretty, pretty straight. Thank so. you. There's, there's been talk about some of the uh, larger universities, SEC and some of the others, pulling away from the NCAA, starting their own league. What do you think about that? I th- I think that could happen. I, I kind of hope it don't. I'm an old-fashioned traditionalist, but but I can see that happening. You know, just where Tennessee and Alabama and Georgia say, well, why should we share the money with East Tennessee State and Memphis? And I, I, I could really see that happening. I don't know if it will or not, but it's. I think that's very something that that we shouldn't be surprised if it does happen. It's been talked about for a while, and and I think with the money. Just the insane money that they're getting from TV right now, that could be even more of an impetus to do it. So in the last 10 years, has UT traditionally been in the 22, but now we're not? They have been. They've been in the black. I think it's gotten to the point now where it's kind of right, mm-hmm. kind of a 50-50, and maybe dipped a little bit yeah. in, into the red. But they have been traditionally good, but it's but – it's, it's real thin right now. We're number 23. <laughs> <laughs> the buyouts, right. Changing coaches, having to buy out coaches, exactly. Yes, ma'am. I would like to say one, one other thing. There is an awful lot of money now in sports, especially generated by football. But I have to say that women have benefited from that to a very great deal. And so I'm kind of... I can argue both ways as to whether it's good or bad because it has certainly helped women. Only because of Title IX. Yes, because because of Title IX and because of – but you're right. Football pays the freight for for everybody. Like the Michigan AD said there back when when we started out, all the eggs are in one basket and you better take care of that basket because that basket's paying for everything. (laughs) One chapter I want to touch on that – I just thought it was particularly interesting. The name of this chapter is The Janitor. The subtitle is I Fix Crap. Only it doesn't say crap, but we'll say crap. The Janitor, I Fix Crap. The uh, Director of Football Operations. Is anybody familiar with what that title is or what that might be? Basically, they've got guys over there who deal with all the crap so that the football coach can just coach football. Stanford's DFO, Director of Football Operations, Matt Doyle, and this is just a little bit about his day. From the 1st of August 2012 and starting at the start of training camp until the Rose Bowl on New Year's Day, Doyle worked 153 days in a row. There's no way to go to the dentist. There's no mowing your lawn. You can only get a haircut because Supercut stays open until 10. But for the most part, there's not all this stuff that regular people do on weekends. Now we're going to go to another director of football operations. This is the janitor, the guy that fixes stuff. Cleve Bryant at at the University of Texas. Bryant liked to say 
that he could look into a player's eyes he boarded the bus and know exactly what kind of practice he was going to have. Nothing got Bob Bryant, not a watch, not a vehicle, not the slightest change in lifestyle. If he saw a player suddenly driving a different car, Whose ride, he'd ask. My girl, says the player. Bring me the paperwork, Brian would say. No paperwork, that ride had better disappear. To those who had butted heads with Brian over the years, he was known as Dr. No, a backhanded slap at the force field he had built over the 13 years around Texas coach Mac Brown. Bryant was best known for his unwavering radar when it came to issues that might eventually spread some mud on the Longhorn program. One year they were, the Longhorns were checking into a hotel for a game at Oklahoma State. It was nearly midnight. Off in the corner of the lobby, Bryant spotted a young, pretty girl in a miniskirt. Groupie, he thought. Then the tumblers clicked, and he remembered how sports agents had turned to babes like this as runners to help entice the top draft picks to sign. Either way, she was a problem. Bryant turned to the Texas Ranger, who always accompanied the team on road trips. Lance, check that out for me, he said, nodding to the girl. Find out if she's a guest at the hotel. Well, it turned out she was. But Bryant goes on, but that didn't matter to me. I didn't want her there. So I went to the manager of the hotel, and I told him he had to decide if he wanted to rent one room or a hundred rooms because either she's gone or we're gone. And like that, she was gone. (laughs) Stuff happens, only he didn't say stuff. Bryant said, and my job is to deal with the holy stuff moments. That way, Mac Brown can spend his time on football, and I can run the program. He knows everything, said one former Texas football star, Bryant. He was the reason the program was indestructible, why it never had any problems. So how did Bryant see himself, right-hand man, buffer, bad cop? He paused, smiled, and turned up his hands. I'm the janitor. I fix stuff. <laughs> In this town, I know the UT police, Texas police, University of Texas police, and I know the Austin PD. I met with them two or three times a year. I bring them my media guides, and I tell them, if one of my players show up someplace they aren't supposed to be, you call me. I don't give a crap what time it is. In all their years together, Bryant and Brown acted like an old married couple, speaking in unspoken looks and shrugs. They had long since devised a way to deal with the distraction and potential trouble. Bryant would handle it. In truth, Bryant said, 80% of the kids did everything right, but the thickest files were always that other 20%. I I just thought that was an enlightening chapter because every school, there's so much goes on. Every school, and and University of Tennessee has has a Cleve Bryant. They have a janitor, or more than one probably now, that uh, just deals with all the stuff that goes on day to day that we never hear about, hoping that we never hear about, they make sure we never hear about it, they make sure the media doesn't know about it. So Butch Jones or whoever can just go coach football. Well, I hope you enjoyed it. It is certainly a thank you. Thank you for listening to Book Sandwiched In, a lunchtime book discussion series sponsored by Knox County Public Library in Knoxville, Tennessee. To find other podcasts, please visit our website at knoxlib.org.